Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. You are listening to a special bonus drop of the On The Tape podcast. Guy Adami and I sat down with a very good friend of ours, Tom Rogers. He invented CNBC while at NBC over three decades ago. He's been a frequent contributor on our show, Fast Money, opining on Disney and Netflix and the streaming wars for years. He's actually nailed the call, almost a pairs trade. He's been long of Netflix and short of Disney. We've talked about his experience as transformative media and technology and much, much more. So stick around for this conversation. We really enjoyed it with Tom Rogers. Dan, every once in a while, we are graced with the present of greatness. Today happens to be one of those days because with us today on the Tape Podcast is our collective friend, Tom Rogers, Executive Chairman of Orbit Gaming and Entertainment, Editor-at-Large at Newsweek, Chairman and CEO of Target Media. I can go on, but then we wouldn't have a podcast. We just have a giant introduction. But Tom, how are you? I am fine. And to be here with the giants of fast money. Where, well, the, are you? The, or are you the, just, the giants of fast where's money. Where's Melissa Lee? Is she here? Who, who are not only fast in speech, but fast in thinking that provide their audience with all kinds of context for what goes on in the markets and beyond, I am honored. Let, let me put it this way, and this happens to be true. If it wasn't for Tom Rogers' vision many years ago, there would be no fast money because amongst many things in your career, CNBC was your baby. It was, and I'm very proud of it. And it was launched or born, I should say, right around the time that my daughter was born. And I had two births on my hands at the same time. She is now 34 years old and a mother of two. And CNBC has grown up and matured. And you guys are the great offspring of that development. You think about, so 34 years ago, think about the idea that you had. It must have been completely foreign to most people you pitched it to. Somebody had to buy in. And obviously you had that vision. But you think about business television today where it's in your wildest dreams, did you imagine 
CNBC being where it is today? We did say we were going to change the face of uh, business journalism, and, and we did. There, hap- there was a broken down financial network at the time called FNN, which we ended up acquiring. But our whole pitch was cable deserved to have business news made more dramatic, made more real, made more of what it was to so many people than the way it was being portrayed by that service. So we did have grandiose ambitions. And we used a lot of grandiose rhetoric, and it's great to see that uh, CNBC lived up to those ambitions. However, I must say, we started out to want to be a general news service, the way not CNBC precisely, but Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, came to me when I started at NBC and said, hey, I need an infusion of money. It was right around the 87 crash. And how about NBC buying into Turner? And we thought it was a great idea, and it was a way to uh, launch some networks with the support of the cable industry because there was a consortium ownership at that time where cable operators actually owned big pieces of Turner. And we cut a deal, and then Ted Turner met Jack Welch, which did not go well, and that squelched it. And Welch said, figure out another path, and the path we figured out was CNBC because I knew Jack Welch was a huge uh, business news junkie. And John Malone, who was the king of cable at the time, was a huge business news junkie, probably the two most important people we needed the support of. And CNBC was born. It's interesting. We had David Gellis, who's a a great author and uh, reporter at the New York Times. And he wrote this book and he was on the pod in the spring. It was the man who broke capitalism. We definitely want to talk about Jack Welch and some of the things that you learned um, from working under him. But also going back to the time with CNBC being created, you also created MSNBC. And you just mentioned that you wanted to do something unique in in business news. What was it about business news back then that you thought was a great opportunity? Because obviously ESPN was doing really well for sports. There were some cable news networks that were doing very well. What did you see specifically about business news that you just mentioned FNN failed, right? That you guys thought you could do better and that was really made for the type of programming that's evolved over the last, call it, 35 years or so. There were so many periodicals, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Business Week, that were all about reporting the drama of the business world. The business world wasn't just about stock quotes. There was a lot to it, a lot of context to it, a lot of action to it, a lot of advice out there, and you weren't able to hear firsthand to see the drama unfold. You mentioned ESPN. ESPN had no data on its screen the way it does now where there's all kinds of data coming at you as a sports viewer. We put a ticker up on the screen and people thought we were absolutely crazy. Tom, you can't do that. You're going to scare away advertisers. This is just a nutty thing to do. No television viewer is going to stand for having that stuff on the screen. So we said, look, we can take data and you can have that. But at the same time, we can make the context, the conversation, the day-to-day drama of what was going on in the markets much more interesting by bringing it to life another way. Now, we pointed to all the resources of NBC News that we had, which was our calling card, Hey Cable Industry. We know you hate broadcasters. This was back in the 80s when the two industries were very much at odds hey, we know you hate broadcasters, but look what we can do for you. And the fact of the matter was we couldn't really use the resources of NBC News at the time because we had to avoid the union rules. So we had to put ourselves out in New Jersey, outside the jurisdiction 
of the New York unions that really controlled all the work rules for NBC so we could have a cheaper cost structure and grow up as a broadcast network under a broadcast network auspices, but separate from the way costs worked for a broadcast network. So it was a, a long time coming before we could use the peacock as the logo. It was a long time coming before we could use some of the other resources of NBC News. But eventually, we were able to demonstrate that, hey, nobody could do this better than an organization that was that steeped in news and information. People who watch Fast Money know that I've been calling you a stud on air for many years, and that is a well-deserved moniker, by the way. It's only for you, as I'm sure our viewers know. But you think about the arc of your career, I think one of the threads is you're willing to take chances without question. And you have vision, as I mentioned earlier. You know, you see things that a lot of people don't see until it's right in front of their eyes. How did you get to that point? Talk about your background, the DNA that helps create that. I can't say that I'm one of the, the great visionaries because I think much of what I've been able to do was pretty much sitting right in front of me. Uh, the cable industry was young, but not brand new when it was formed. And I used to explain to people at NBC who were highly critical that we were using this money to build a cable network around business news when they thought more movies of the week would bring in many more viewers. And I said, of course they would, but that's not the business model. We're going to put out a business network. And at any given time, 99.5% of television viewers will not watch us. That's the way it's supposed to be. They will not watch us, but we will get paid across every single cable household. And look at this chart. There are 40 million cable households to, when, we, when we launched this thing, but it was easy to see it was going to go to 80 million and 100 million households. And imagine that, getting paid for every household, but only one half of 1% of viewers at any time would watch you. Who wouldn't think that wasn't a model sent from God? A lot of people, but the, you know that there's the old saying, there's safety in numbers. People don't want to take chances. So in your background, in your childhood, being raised there must have been influences, people that basically tutored you or gave you sort of the confidence to do what basically you put in place on your own. I will say I had one teacher that was had remarkable influence for me and was the same teacher Andrew Ross Sorkin had, known anchor on the CNBC Squawk Box. And I was a couple years before him, that teacher, only a couple. And this was an eighth grade social studies teacher, made a career out of teaching eighth grade social studies, despite the fact that he had a Harvard law degree. And he was a remarkable teacher, prolific author, a teacher by the name of Irving Sloan. And both Andrew and I gave eulogies at his funeral because he was that impactful to us. And he gave us a sense of the world and current events and news beyond what most kids were being exposed to at that point. And not only that, but coming up with independent views, coming up with independent opinions, coming up with a vantage point where you were encouraged to analyze and discuss not just what uh, you read, but coming up with your own views beyond that. And that had a lot of impact on me. I think probably more than any other teacher gave me that sense of, hey, 
Don't always go with the pack. Go with your own thoughts and try to develop them. A lot of people ask Guy and I, how did you guys come up with the idea for Rishversal Media and why did you want to do longer form podcasting for financial marketing? And I think Guy would tell you that he and I are both very fortunate that we happen to find our way to CNBC and really talk about things with the sort of interest and passion that we did on trading desks for years in front of a camera on CNBC. So we're very fortunate that we've had the opportunity to do that. Guy is one of the original Fast Mumber, Fast Money 5, I think it was, back in, started in 2006, 2007. I started doing options action with Max Myers in 2009 and then started doing regularly CNBC on 2011. We're going to get to your, what I think are prolific participation on our show, talking about near and dear to your heart, which is media. And you've been so right. The math that you talked about as far as what you saw 34 years ago for CNBC is the exact opposite. That's what's been happening with cable TV over the last, call it, five to 10 years. And it's one of the things that you've been so right on, which is, I think, where the stud name comes from. You have been bullish on Netflix and bearish on Disney for, I think, 10 years. And it's worked out brilliantly. But I just want to say one other thing that in the beginning of 2020, going back to Risk Reversal Media, you really served as a mentor to me and Guy. I came to you and I, I laid out what Guy and I wanted to do with this longer form podcasting. And you saw it and you were really encouraging. And we really appreciate that. This is now three years on now. We're going third year a little bit. So we consider you a mentor. We really appreciate that. We wanted to say that to you well, here. No, and, and I, before I you say anything, Tom, assault. just let me say this. It, it meant a great deal to have somebody of your stature and obviously influence supported us. Sometimes you just need somebody to sort of say, you know what, you're on the right track, go for it. And you were that person. You guys are incredibly talented. You have a hell of a following. The dynamics on Fast Money that you guys create is unique to television. And this podcast deserves to be heard far and wide by virtue of the fact that you're able to do a longer form thing. Having said that, I take everything you said with a grain of salt. This is your third year doing it, and this is the first time I've gotten an invitation. So there many, must be <laughs> many, many more people oh. who you put up there as important players that you want to hear from. No, but you know, you know, it's interesting that you say that. Andrew Ross Sorkin has been on, and his his story is truly amazing, crossing over mediums too. And you know, one of the things that's interesting about what we do right now is that Guy grew up with sports talk radio and was really into it. He still calls into Boomer's show. Oh, no, He's right. Guy from Morristown. And I over the last, I was a really early adopter of podcasting. And Guy is still to this day, you've probably done hundreds with me now. You've never listened to one, no. okay? If, if that, <laughs> which is really interesting. But we love this medium. We're really enjoying it. Talk to us a little bit. You have Orbit Gaming, you have Target Media. You've been involved. TiVo was a cutting edge technology for a while. What is it that you see about transformative media technology and you've been moving? Guy, you like to use that analogy that life's a game of Frogger. You've been moving around as technology has shifted. Uh, I've been fortunate to be involved in a lot of elements of the media industry that have marked change for where the industry is going. And TiVo was a great example. What cable was all about was more and more choice for the consumer. There were, before cable, there were a handful of channels in any given market, and cable had more and more channels with more and more choice. The choice was coming in in a way that you couldn't see what you wanted to see when you wanted to see it. And what TiVo did is change the dynamic and say, now the consumer's in control. The consumer will be able to capture and record anything out there really easily, develop their own menu, personalize it, customize it, so now the consumer's in control of all that choice. That was step one with the digital video recorder. 
What Thiebaud also did, but isn't as well known for in terms of the invention of the DVR, was creating the streaming age. Because we had a box that was built to be able to handle content being streamed to the television set, we were the first ones to take Netflix and Amazon and get them to the TV. And a lot of people thought that was, okay, that's a hobby kind of thing. Who really cares? Obviously, today, that has further transformed on-demand television. So it's not only what is coming in on a channel, but you can have these vast libraries of streaming content that you can take anything you want when you want it and, and watch it. Now, what we haven't solved for, although TiVo had solved for it at the time when we sold the company in 2016, much content has come on board since then, and nobody has fully solved for this, is unlike Spotify, which gives music, the gives a consumer the ability to find any piece of music anywhere, regardless of when it was developed or where it's coming from, all in your pocket, easy to, to figure out. People don't have an easy way to figure out what's on where in the video world because it's too balkanized. And there will be soon solution on the market that will allow somebody in a Spotify type content context, all free channels, all pay streaming channels, YouTube content, all the content out there under one roof where you have universal search to be able to find anything you want when you want it. Interestingly, it's going to come from the cable guys, from Comcast and from Charter. And that, I think, is going to make a huge difference for those who are cutting the cord relying solely on broadband and streaming content coming through it to be able to have that kind of ability to do what's been done in the music world for a long time now. Let's go back to Netflix and Disney, because as Dan mentioned, you were way ahead of this curve and the outperformance. And it's not just the outperformance of Netflix, it's the underperformance of Disney at the same time. Typically, when people talk about these things, they get one of the sides right. You got both of them right, just to put it out there. But here's my first question. Jensen Wong, we talk about, and Lisa Su, and all the great CEOs. Nobody really mentions the brilliance of Reed Hastings for whatever reason. I'll put him up there with anybody over the last couple decades, yet he seems to sort of fly under the radar screen. Why do you think that is? Good question. Reed understood that there was a way to further transform the media industry in terms of putting control in the consumer's hands and succeeded in doing it. I think the bears on Netflix lasted much longer despite Netflix having proved that it created a model that was going to succeed. And you'd hear regularly, including on Fast Money, people coming on saying, whatever this thing is, it will never be cash flow positive. This thing's never going to generate cash. And it was very clear that it was on a good climb to generate a lot of cash as it does today. So the pessimism lasted much longer than I think it, it should have. I'm surprised given the fact that it finally has become somewhat consensus that what I said for a long time, Netflix is in a class by itself, that it is, that Reed hasn't gotten that kind of credit. And he decided not to lead the company anymore. And in part, that may be his legacy certainly should be celebrated. Guy mentioned that in our business, we call it a Paris trade, right? If you were long Netflix and short Disney, and oftentimes you just need one to outperform the other to make that work. And we went back, Stephen, who works with us, who puts together notes for our rundown of these conversations. 
He went back for years. You never wavered on the Disney thing. Now you hobnob, and we're not going to dox you. You got your. I your learned reg- what that means. You got your regular lunch spots. A lot of media folks at those places. You've been holding court for years and years, and I'm sure you bump into a lot of the folks who hear what you have to say on CNBC about other media companies and the like here. And you never wavered on the Disney thing. And now the market has spoken on Disney. So. Talk to us a little bit about that, because to me, there's many guests that our producers encourage us to push back on guests. I used to a little bit on Netflix, and I realized pretty quickly, if I'm just coming at valuation, Tom Rogers is going to eat my lunch on this sort of thing. And why did you never waver? Let's start with more on the bearishness on Disney and the path that they took towards streaming. And then we can also talk about why Netflix is in that class by themselves here. The, the hard parts about not wavering was when Disney was at 180 and Netflix had hit a high of 700 and was rapidly on the way down. Those are the hard times not to waver, not that I do valuation analysis. I'm much more about operational elements of a company and how that relates to macro trends and whether they're going to be able to succeed in them given how they're operated or not. Uh, but obviously, those were some pretty phenomenal movements in directions that were contrary to what I was saying about the prospects of the companies. And as Guy pointed out, what went on and what was obvious was going to go on in the legacy media area with Disney being the leading player there was all that greatness of the cable model getting paid beyond for every home, even for those who aren't watching you, as people started to cut the cord and find there was a cheaper way to get a lot of television that ended up being really high quality, that that model was going to fall apart and it was going to begin to fall apart and accelerate. And the, the weird thing about Disney was Bob Iger was incredibly prescient. He said it. He wasn't as if they missed that or that they came to it too late. He knew about that with ESPN eight years ago and was very clear about it. What was remarkable was that they didn't make the moves that they should have having recognized that. And it was very clear to me that they were putting all their focus on growing streaming subs and putting up numbers, some of which were ridiculous about that were coming out of Asia that were worth almost nothing, but they were getting headline credit for it, looked like, you know, they had this whole new cocaine thing going of, hey, just put more numbers up there and the stock will be streaming numbers up there and the stock will be fine. And clearly ignoring that the economics of their core business was going to deteriorate and deteriorate badly and they weren't doing anything about it. And that's what I kept telling people, don't focus so much on the streaming number. The core business and its deterioration is going to bite them in the ass. And there was very little market recognition of that going to happen. So, so Iger's back. He brings back Mayer and Staggs, who are also there. These are brilliant guys, right? Like, we can agree on that. Are they going to be able to stem this sort of tide? Because from what I've heard from you over the last few quarters or so, it's kind of lights out here. Like, the economics have caught up to them in a way. I think they got a very tough hand, in part because they basically said, they got to do a bunch of deals and they've said it publicly and now they're getting measured on their deal prowess rather than the operations of the company. Until they get the deals done, it's going to be very hard for anybody to see whether they're on a a new path to uh, growth or not. 
the deals they're looking to do, which include a partner with ESPN, potentially selling ABC, having to do distribution deals with other major cable operators after they did one with Charter, that where the deal provisions, I don't think, are still very well known. And I think there's probably, the market is probably giving Disney better value for the outcome of that charter deal than they may deserve. So there are a lot of there are a lot of deals in front of them. And Kevin is a very talented deal maker. And I give credit to Bob Iger for bringing some guys back who he owned up to his mistake of putting the wrong guy as in there as CEO. Whether they can figure this out, I don't know. They, they will do a deal. I think they will do a deal whether it will be a deal that really makes a difference in terms of being able to renew the growth of the company at levels that Disney is accustomed to is a whole different thing. They ended up doing a sports gambling deal. Okay, they did a deal. I think it's incredibly unimpactful deal. It probably makes up for the equivalent of losing a million ESPN subs, and they're going to lose 15 million or more over the next several years. They they did a deal with a guy who's got 2% market share in the sports gambling market where they missed the opportunity to do deals with guys who have 75% market share. So they will do a deal, whether that deal will be impactful enough, I'm reserving judgment on, but I will say Kevin is a very talented deal guy. I'll say this, and you don't have to agree or disagree or even comment, but I am convinced that Bob Iger is probably saying to himself, why did I come back? He could have sort of rode off into the sunset albeit maybe the legacy of him putting the wrong person in charge would have haunted him. But with that said, he was on a great perch there. And you've said this yourself, this is a two and a half, three-year problem that they probably have to work themselves out of. And the stock recently below 80 bucks was at a multi-year low, if you think about it, which is quite remarkable. I want to ask this question, though, because I'm not a big... If you listen to certain cable news, and this is not politics, but you hear go woke and go broke. And obviously that's associated with a number of different brands, Disney on it. But the, in my opinion, the trajectory for Disney was set in lo- motion long before anybody ever considered that phrase. Am, am I right oh, here? I, agree. I think the whole DeSantis dispute over the don't say gay bill in Florida is the impact on Disney's trajectory there is minimal to say the least. I think it's a lesson for CEOs in terms of how to deal with public policy issues and their own brands and how they navigate a a nation which is divided on social issues and what you do about that when you have employees that expect you to take positions and you have customers who can easily be offended by those positions. But in terms of the impact on Disney and its operations, I don't really think that was a factor. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators 
and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. I often look up and I see you on Morning Joe. The guy mentioned that you are the editor at large in Newsweek and you write a column there that is very pointed. To me, I and I read them and I listen to you, you seem very practical. You just talked about a nation very divided. Your rhetoric is not divisive. You're often trying to offer some sort of prescription, right? How we can move forward. But you do have, obviously, you've taken a side. Here, how have you, how has that voice come out? This is not something you could have done back in the day when you were working at GE. Were you always politically engaged? And in in the last, call it 10, 20 years, you've been a bit more active and vocal. And I'm just curious, how does that kind of play in a lot of the companies that you're very involved in now too? My Newsweek work and the politic political commentary that I'm involved in is is pretty separate from my corporate involvements today. The I guess what ties them together is I do a lot of thinking about the decline of traditional media and what impact that may have on news and information in particular, because CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, et cetera, are not immune from the same cord-cutting trends and the decline of the revenue that support them and the importance of the voices that they bring forward is critical to the functioning of democracy. And that goes way back to experience I had on Capitol Hill when I was a young lawyer where I wrote the the Cable Act of 1984, which defined how cable was going to be regulated. And up until that point, cable was stifled by local governments that were taking the revenue from cable operators to pave sidewalks. And it was very clear that the programming aspects of cable were being starved because the money couldn't be poured back into that. So we created a federal regulatory framework that was intended to encourage the reinvestment into content and programming. And then when I was lucky enough to be hired at NBC by then GE CEO Jack Welch, I was able to put that into practice with pouring money into cable programming. And the connection there between politics and what it took to get through cable legislation and media and news and the outcome of that legislation being the very creation of CNBC and MSNBC. But at the same time, it led to the creation of Fox News. And Fox News, I have to say, has done an enormous amount to undermine democracy in this country. Our goal in creating that federal legislation was to have more diversity, more viewpoints, both right and left. What we did not anticipate was that there would be something that could market in high degrees of misinformation and that could become a political lane for a candidate like Donald Trump who could specialize in misinformation to the point that it could undermine our democratic institutions. So we have the decline of traditional media, and I fear news and the voices it brings with it, and the decline of our traditional democratic values occurring at the same time. 
And the most pointed commentary that I've had recently is that while we lived through the Trump era and thought Biden was our answer to making sure that we rebuilt our democratic values, it looks to me today that Donald Trump is going to be reelected president of the United States, given the political dynamics that are developing with a with what I think will be a strong third-party candidacy, which will eat away at Biden's support that will pave the path for Donald Trump to be reelected. And we will then see a greater acceleration of the decline of our democratic values if that were to happen again, tragic if it does happen, while in the next few years we're going to see an accelerating decline of traditional media because of accelerated cord cutting. And news is going to get bitten with that. And what does that mean in terms of the citizenry, the information they get, and how we're able to respond to these threats to our democracy? So hold that thought for a second, okay? I had the, the good fortune to have dinner with Dan Abrams years ago with a mutual friend. And he asked me, Dan asked me, Guy, what do you think your role, like how do you see yourself on Fast Money? And I said, I like to think of myself as sort of the down the middle voice of reason. And he said, understood. He goes, you do realize in today's world, you need to pick a side. So it's interesting. It always resonated with me. So here's my question to you. I understand everything you just said. But what's proven to be the case is people want to live in their echo chambers. On one side, they're reinforced by the aforementioned Fox News. And quite frankly, to a certain extent, on the other side, you can make a similar case for MSNBC, probably not as much, but let the audience make those decisions. You're dead in the middle. And CNN is proving that seemingly every day in terms of the ratings they're seeing or not seeing. But that speaks to the country, how dug in people are and how polarized we are. How do you break through that? You're a very thoughtful person. People are steadfast right now in their foxholes. In part, that's what worries me because so much of the country does not want either Biden or Trump to run that I think that this is a year where if a moderate centrist unity ticket of a Democrat and Republican are put together, as No Label says they're going to do, that that will actually have a lot of appeal, that there are a lot of people out there who actually are yearning for something that is different than polarization and would be attracted to that kind of candidacy and what they're going to espouse. And that worries me because we can't afford to look at this election as, well, that's great, give people another choice but it's going to elect our most undemocratic forces. Okay, so let's play that out. Can they make a difference or are they just going to steal votes from one side or the other? Nobody since George Wallace has run as a third-party candidate, which he did in the late 60s, and won any electoral vote. I think it's a preposterous idea for no labels to think that they can garner 270 electoral votes and win the presidency, which is why the spoiler role is the one they're going to play. And that spoiler role is going to tilt the playing field drastically away from Joe Biden and in favor of Donald Trump. And that's my problem with the third party candidacy, despite the sentiment underlying it, that it represents that people, there are a significant number of people hungry for some answer that is not such a polarized. All right here, not that my opinion matters and not that anybody cares. And I've said this for a while. So, you know, I've thought for last year that early next year, May, April, May, 
Joe Biden would take himself out of the election. He can't do it now. It would create the sort of the purgatory that a lot of people find themselves in, right? You don't want to be on that side of the equation. I think what's going to wind up happening is Gavin Newsom gets the nod. Gretchen Whitmers is running away from Michigan, the Democratic governor. The flip side, Trump, he's going to bring Nikki Haley in. And that's it. Battle lines are drawn. How does that play out if I'm right? I don't think unless there's some health issue that develops that Joe Biden's going to take himself out of the race. If he did, I think the no labels effort would fizzle because I think the whole third party appeal is the notion that a, a Biden Trump choice is not one most of the country wants and therefore a third party choice could be attractive, even though I think they're uh, kidding themselves that third party choice could ever could ever win. So if it was a two person race with your candidates there, I think Donald Trump has a ceiling that he can't get to a majority and even in the swing states. And that ticket would win without a third party depriving it of the key votes that it needs to. Guy just talked about my fever dream right there because Whitmer would deliver Michigan and Gavin's a fighter, but there's still the Kamala Harris issue there. We'll save that for a, another podcast here. Right. You mentioned Jack Welch. You mentioned that you had the honor to, to work there at NBC at the time. And it's funny. He was a guy when I was growing up in college and studying some, he was revered and for a whole host of reasons. But there was a time where, I, I don't know, man, it was like, it was a month before the election in 2012. And I think he tweeted this out and I think he was on Squawk Box and he had turned pretty, pretty hard right at the yep. time. Remember, there was this really strong jobs number guy and now strong jobs number now are bad, but they were good a month before the 2012 um, election. And he tweeted something out, uh, unbelievable jobs number. These Chicago guys will do anything, can't debate. It was like the day after a debate. So they're changed the numbers. And I remember there and then I almost jumped out of my seat. I was like, who the hell is this guy? You know what I mean? And it was just really interesting to me. And it seems since then and in and around that period of time, a lot of views towards him were changing. And it brings us to this book, our friend David Gellis's book, which I thought was a great read. And we had a great conversation with him on the pod. Talk to us a little bit about maybe one great thing that you learned under Jack Welch, and I'm sure there were many as a manager and, and, and the like here, and but maybe some things that you've given some thought to since then. I never never agreed with Jack Welch's politics, put that aside. GE was a pretty unique company when he was there, and it had everything from NBC to jet engines and appliances to a massive financial services business. And one person managing a portfolio like that at the time being the most valuable company in the world was a, a hell of a task, and he was a uniquely talented in being able to manage it. The one thing, more than anything else, that stuck out from working at Jack Welch's GE was he really beat into your brain that any idiot could run a company for the near term. If all you were worried about was next quarter's results, not a hard thing for a manager to do. And any idiot could look at long-term strategy and say, hey, you know what? All that matters is that horizon three years out. I'm running the company for that. He said, what a GE manager ought to be is somebody who is running the business for the near term and the long term and getting that balance right is everything. And it's kind of a simple and to some extent obvious thought, but if you wake up every morning saying, I got to think about the long term. I got to think about the near term. I can't sacrifice one for the other. Both are important. 
How do you meld any decision so that you are maximizing for that outcome? It does train your thinking in a way that creates a certain approach to everything you do in business. It's really interesting because there are a bunch of books out. William Cohen just wrote a book, Power Failure, about G, but there are a number of books about Jack Welch, about J.E. Some would, sub, I don't know, they'd submit that maybe, although Jack said those things, he was not practicing what he preached. And that's probably for another podcast as well. I'm sure Jeff Immelt has some thoughts. Well, I'll tell you, CNBC is a good case in point. CNBC would have died if Jack Welch did not have my back. Truth. There were too many people who said, bad idea. And that was a long-term, we need to be into cable. Cable is going to be where the value is created. Broadcasting is not going to have the market to itself anymore. Be there. But at the same time, he wrote us in terms of cost and expense. The legacy of that is still on CNBC today. CNBC's weekend programming is infomercial. You know why it was infomercials? Because we had to show Jack we would do anything to make sure that less important programming for our branding was bringing something in, and it brought in money. 34 years later, I'm not sure so sure infomercials are the best use of CNBC time, but it was near-term and long-term put together. You're as relevant today as you were when you wrote that piece or that piece of legislation in the early 1980s. What gets you excited? I mean, you're clearly excited about what you're doing. Talk about that. You want to know what gets me really excited? Sure. And you're you're not going to think I'm consistent in my thinking, but animated Disney movie. Why? I have a grandson. He's two years old. Loves looking at Disney movies doesn't really understand the dialogue. And I'm talking about Toy Story. I'm talking about The Little Mermaid. I sit there and he has great understanding, even though the dialogue in the movies are not necessarily making that much sense. And I translate for him everything that's going on in the screen so he can understand it. And it is so heartwarming for me to be able to take a piece of media that's really well produced. This is the best of Disney stuff. And make it meaningful to a two-year-old who's just beginning to understand all kinds of things about the world and how they work. And it's about as gratifying an experience for a media guy as there is to have be able to sit with a grandson and have that kind of influence. CNBC is a powerful network and Fast Money is a powerful brand. And speaking of which, anecdotally, the power of fast money manifested itself in a recent dinner you had, your anniversary dinner out in Greenwich, Connecticut. Tell that story. It's the, it's more about the uh, the power of Guy Adami's branding, <laughs> really. Uh, having called me a stud so many times, which, by the way, my wife didn't know she was married to a well, stud. Well, she knows now. <laughs> she, she is, it, it has meant a lot to her. We are uh, sitting for a major anniversary dinner in Greenwich, Connecticut, and we're closing down the restaurant with my kids that came in from the the occasion. And there's a, a, a table next to us, a, a man and his uh, wife. And uh, at the end of the dinner, we ask the uh, waiter to take a picture of the family. And as he's taking the picture, the gentleman sitting at the next table turns around and says, you're the stud from Fast Money. You love that, didn't you? And I said, in front of the kids, 
with my wife to be recognized publicly as a stud. <laughs> I said, my God, what has Guy Adami done to my image? Well, now, you you guys are the are the are the are the studs, and I say that because you are so studied. When it comes to the markets and companies, I couldn't begin to do what you guys do. I can comment on the media sector, but what you guys do is take every company, every sector, every macro trend and have solid thoughts, opinions, and analysis on all of it. I am nowhere near that dexter. So whatever you have branded me, you guys are far more studied than I ever will. It's extraordinarily well-deserved. And people will say, well, that's true because guys about three miles wide and an inch deep, but that is what it is. But Tom, we absolutely appreciate you joining us. It's been, you're right, long overdue. But as the saying goes, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And today we thank you for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. You guys are great. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.